This is Sound Lives, a new music box podcast sharing insights and stories from people who dedicate their lives to new music. Brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Sound Lives. I'm Frank J. O'Terry. We've been listening to the overture to the Opera 27 composed by Ricky Ian Gordon from the Opera Theater of St. Louis production featuring Stephanie Blythe and Elizabeth Futrell conducted by Michael Christie, which is available on Albany Records. In this episode of Sound Lives, I'll be talking with Ricky about his operas, his musicals, and his song cycles, the differences between these mediums, how literature and collaboration inspires him, and creating viable artistic work during the pandemic. As wonderful as your website is, it was so sad to go on the page, the homepage of your website and see that there are no upcoming performances. But of course, that's the case with so many of us in this very, very weird time that we're living in. And I thought that that was something to begin with, to kind of meditate on that and what it means this year of hiatus after, you know, a decade or more that's been super, super active for you. It's really interesting, Frank. There's one thing, if you go to, Julia Bullock did a concert with the San Francisco Symphony and it ends with a big piece of mine called Litany. I have to say, it's a really good concert. Julia curated it and it's beautiful, but it's been an interesting year and I'll tell you why. I was previewing my opera, Intimate Apparel, at Lincoln Center. We were supposed to open on March 23rd, and then we were going to open Garden of the Finzi Cantini with New York City Opera and the Yiddish Theater. Ellen West was going to have performances elsewhere. Grapes of Wrath was going to open in Aspen. You know, Renee Fleming and Patrick Summers, their new thing. So I came up here. I'm in the country now. I came up March 12th. I did some rewrites on Intimate Apparel and then worked on the orchestrations for Finzi Contini. Once I sussed out that this was gonna be way more than a month, you sort of got a sense like, this is gonna be a year. So I decided I needed to turn in another direction. I actually decided I'm gonna take a break from notes for a little while. I just had done practically an opera a year, you know, and I started a writing group with poet and novelist friends of mine. A lot of them, like, you know, Marie Howe, who was Poet Laureate of New York, Nick Flynn, Donna Messini, Victoria Riddell, a bunch of really vibey Francis, really good writers. Actually, Royce Vavrick, the librettist, is in it. I did it because I wanted to see what would happen if I concentrated solely on words for a while. And by creating a writing group, I was creating an imperative, right? Richard McCann was in it, who just died. Mm. That was very sad. I started writing every week. At one point, I wrote a big piece on Joni Mitchell. I sent it to my friend, um, Bob Guccione, who's, you know, Robert Guccione's son. And he works at Spin Magazine and his girlfriend, Liza Lentini. I sent it to both of them, not to published it just to say, I thought you guys might think this is fun. And it got published in spin. And then they took a poem of mine. Just for the fun of it, I sent it to Jonathan Galassi at Farrar Strauss and Giroux. You know, he's the president of, and I met him through Frank Bedard because we all sat next to each other at the Pulitzer dinner when Frank won the Pulitzer. So he wrote me back a great note, just saying he was, it was a sort of a note of counsel where he said, I feel like there's something here. And what I would suggest is you just keep generating material. Don't revise, don't edit, just keep writing. He wanted to send me John Giorno's new memoir that they had just published. When I was like almost done with the John Giorno book, I wrote to Jonathan again, just to talk about what I felt about the book he had sent me. And just for the hell of it, I sent him two more sections. And by the way, Frank, all of this was because in February, right at the beginning of the month, I read my horoscope and it said, this is like the best month of your entire life. I just said, I'm going to be brave. So anyway, the second time I sent Jonathan more stuff, I got a book contract. Wow. So it's amazing because it means from now until December, 
I have to come back into the city in December because then we start rehearsals for Intimate Apparel and um, Fincy Contini. Basically, I told them I'm, I'm working on a book and it's really nice. You know, I've written some music, like I wrote a song cycle for Erin Morley, um, Huit Chansons de Fleur, and I wrote Blythe Gassert is putting out a new CD called Home, and I wrote my own piece on it called Jerry Hammer, which is my lyric and music. This was an unbelievably interesting and productive time, only because I turned in another direction. Part of doing that was because I couldn't get behind sort of writing music and anything that relies on performance during a period when there was not gonna be any performance. It just felt like the wrong direction. And also the whole Zoom music thing, you know, like operas on Zoom, it just doesn't interest me that much. I actually think the Julia Bullock, San Francisco Symphony thing was astonishingly effective. I also think my friend Ted Sperling, who did the master voices, you know, they're doing Adam Gettle's myths and hymns and sections, really imaginative, but in general, music on Zoom, not that interested. I'm interested in live performance. You know, there are all these people who've been adapting work for presentation. And, you know, obviously some companies are playing video recordings of work. Prototype did that early on. Then there's all this new work that's getting created. And I thought, you know, maybe a piece like Ellen West, because it's two characters, it's very intimate. Or, you know, going back a little further, Coffin in Egypt is, you know, essentially, you know, a monologue that has these other characters who don't sing, who kind of flit around because it's based on, you know, the original that's based on is, is exclusively it's a monologue. one person play. Yeah. Yes, and I mean, then it has the gospel singers. Yeah. I mean, that could kind of maybe work as a Zoom thing. And then I thought all going all the way back, Orpheus and Eurydice probably could work as yes. a Zoom. And Green Sneakers. Green Sneakers, yeah. I think, might be... I think Kevin Newberry and Michael Kelly are trying to do that with Boston Opera. So that might happen. And maybe then I'll feel different. Like maybe if I'm participating in it, but in general, it has sort of felt like a dead zone to me. But we're all fickle. And if suddenly it was a form that was about my work, then I'm sure I'd turn around on it because I'm 12 <laughs> years old inside. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's interesting because what this thing has done is it's like, redefined what opera can be yet again. And in a way, you know, you're the perfect person for this because your whole career has been about, I mean, there are some works that get called operas. There are some works that get called musicals. There are some works that get called song cycles, but it's not really all that clear cut in a way. No, it's not. And in, in a way, I feel like that's my contribution is I'm the guy who writes hybrid, <laughs> you know, whatever that, and the truth is, right, it's not because I intend to, it's because that's how they come to me. You know, even when I write a song cycle, you look at something like Only Heaven, it has an arc, it has a dramatic arc, and we write what we write. You know, then I have pieces like Grapes of Wrath and 27 that are big operas, or 27 sort of like big, like Albert Herring is big, but well, no, big, much bigger orchestration. But yeah, I mean, I think I'd be very eligible for this form, although I really lo am looking forward to live theater again. Well, it's very nice to hear you say that those two pieces that were kind of put on hiatus are both going back into production. Oh yeah, they didn't even take down the set of Intimate Apparel. I mean, wow. Michael Yergin's set is there, Kathy Zuber's costumes, Jennifer Tipton's lights, everything's in place, you know? We just have to get back in the theater. We'll open the theater again. That's mm -hmm. really, really amazing. But let's let's go deeper talking about these hybrids. Grapes of Wrath is definitely undeniably the big grand opera. You know, it's three hours plus. It's like it's it's a big piece. But then, you know, on the other hand, you have a musical comedy, a musical theater piece that's based on Marcel Proust. So I guess I love it, that piece. I do yes. too. Beautiful, oh, beautiful writing. You. But it begs the question, how is it that these two great works of literature, you know, A la Recherche de Temps Perdu and The Grapes of Wrath, you know, one of them inspires a musical, the other inspires a grand opera. 
I was asked to write The Grapes of Wrath for Minnesota Opera. So they immediately approached me about doing an opera of that piece of literature. So there was never a question about what the approach would be other than at one point we talked about it being a two-night operatic experience because the story was so big to tell, spreading it out over two or even three evenings, which I love the idea of. Then My Life with Albertine came about because Charlie Prince, Hal Prince's son, and he's a conductor, and we worked together on my first opera, Tibetan Book of the Dead. And Charlie had conducted The Dead with Richard Nelson, the playwright. Richard wanted to create a piece out of A La Recherche, just using the Albertine sections, which is really the captive. So they approached me about doing a musical of My Life with Albertine. So that's the form it took. But Richard is a lot like me. He's sort of a soulmate in terms of the plays he creates, the the theatrical experiences he creates. They are the world of Richard Nelson. If you went to see any of the Apple family plays or the Gabriel plays, or even his Uncle Vanya. It was like Uncle Vanya by Richard Nelson. I mean, you were in this tiny space, you had to lean forward, and no one ever spoke above the level that you would if you were sitting at a table. It was so intimate, and that's Richard's aesthetic. So in a way, My Life with Albertine was this very intimate retelling of, to me, it was just a, such a, a beautiful little piece. And it was really just a meditation on one section of Proust. You know, there's so much story to tell there, and no one's ever succeeded at telling the whole story. Well, seven operas, maybe, or seven musicals. Right, (laughs) which I'd love to do. I'd love to do. I, I could work on Proust my whole life. That would be fine. Those forms came about because of the exigencies, you know, what what you're offered. And then as soon as Richard and I started writing that, Tim Sanford heard some of the music and said, we want to open the new Playwrights Horizons with this which was both good and bad, frankly, because it was like opening a huge new theater that no one had tried out before. We're opening in the winter. No one knows how to make the heat any lower. It's a new musical in a theater that's 90 degrees. I mean, it's sort of like, would Antony and Cleopatra have gone better if it didn't open the new Met? Nobody knows how to use the house yet. It's better to open a house on Madame Butterfly then on a brand new opera that is going to ask new things of this space. You know, you live, you learn. And one day Richard and I will do that again, this fantasy I have. You know, Grapes of Wrath has never been done in the form it was done in Minnesota opera. Simply put, that was 2007. By 2008, nobody had money anymore. So nobody could ever afford to do what we did in 2007. But when we did the final room run of Grapes of Wrath at Minnesota Opera, it was amazing. I don't care if I wrote it, I'm just telling you, it was amazing, it was shattering. The people that were watching, there was something about being in a rehearsal room with a piece that big happening right in front of you that was so astounding. And someday I want to do, like I was thinking, it could be like the armory or just a huge rehearsal room. Someone would have to give me like a million dollars to do it and sort of accept that how many people can sit in a rehearsal room every night. But I want to do it that way with just two pianists and the the entire piece, because that's something very few people, Frank, ever get to experience is the immediacy of what happens in a rehearsal room which no matter what is gained when you bring it onto a stage and into a theater, something is always lost. And it makes me sad sometimes that most of an audience never gets to see what happens in that rehearsal room. The room run, it's astonishing. And they never get to see that. It's so interesting to hear you say that because now, you know, we're in this era that we're in an even further remove. The wall of the stage prevents you, you know, from seeing things. The the stage, the proscenium that separates the audience from from the cast. But now, you know, we have the internet that separates us all, it connects us all, but it's it's this wall between everything we experience because nobody 
can safely experience things in the corporeal world yet. You know, when I think about a piece like Grapes of Wrath, you know, I was listening to it again this weekend and I thought, wow, this is so from the before the coronavirus era. It's so like, you know, huge before any of this. And, and, I, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, when can something like this ever happen again? How long is it going to take for us to be able to do something like this again? And that's the thing is, I don't know. And of course, I have a new opera commission for Opera Theater of St. Louis. And I'm excited about it. And we have to be careful about things like chorus, amount of orchestra, and all of it. You know, you can't be Wagner or Strauss anymore for a long time. And I don't think that, not that it's a bad thing, because it engages your imagination. I mean, like Stravinsky said, sometimes the best thing to have for your imagination are limitations. So I'm this piece for St. Louis, I'm looking forward to, but boy, will I be excited to do Grapes of Wrath again, the way it was intended to be done. But what's so interesting, though, is like right leading up to the pandemic, your pieces were all these smaller, more intimate pieces, even to some extent, intimate apparel is a is a oh, relatively small it's, it's two pianos yeah yeah and i did that purposely because it's totally affordable and it fits in the lincoln center theater and you see the orchestra but if we took it to another opera company it would be a pleasure to orchestrate and easy because once you've written for two piano staffs right two grand staffs pretty much all the information is there so that would be a fun thing to do. But yes, it's completely intimate. So this fake duality between musicals and operas, since you've done both and you've had your feet in both worlds, are there meaningful differences between them? Is it a continuum? Is it an either or? There's a difference. And besides for the obvious difference, Frank, in general, a musical operates scene, song, scene, song. Even when you sort of adjust the context, like for example, Richard Nelson in My Life with Albertine, he created the context of a man is putting on a show in a living room and that show is called My Life with Albertine so that it has a reason to exist because Richard has to find the truth and the truth can't be that someone just sings out of nowhere. It has to be, I wrote this for you in order to tell my story today. Nevertheless, there are scenes and songs, right? The best way to illustrate this is when we first wrote Grapes of Wrath, there were scenes, there was dialogue. And we went to workshop act one at Minnesota Opera. And Frank, this isn't true universally, but it can be often true that opera singers act with their voices. They act when they sing. When you ask them to speak, and I'm not going to make excuses or apologize for saying this, often there is no air in the balloon. And it's because they are trained to act with their voices, not when they talk. And it's not a skill many singers have. I wish I could say that conservatories train singers to be actors, but it's woefully underdone. And so if you do a musical with opera singers, there's every possibility that the acting will not be as good as if you have Kelly O'Hara or Victoria Clark or Audrey McDonald or people who absolutely know what they're doing on every front. All that happened when I ended up setting all the dialogue to music, which was supposed to be spoken for Grapes of Wrath, was suddenly it was energized and suddenly those scenes took off. Thank God we did a workshop of act one and found out we have to set that to music. Those lines absolutely lose all of their energy the second they're spoken by opera singers. And meanwhile, what's great is the singers we had in the production were incredible actors. It's not to say that opera singers can't act, but the way they act is through their instrument. But it isn't about talking. On the flip side of this, then, 
the pluses with working in musical theater is you get folks who can act and sing. But maybe the minus is they can't sing anything. Or is that not true? They can't. Well, yeah, that, of course, when you're working in opera, you're working with a whole different vocal capacity, right? That's what's exciting about opera is the voice. That's what drew me to opera, the voice, voices. Also, just to say, you will never have the forces you have with opera when you get the forces. Like, for example, it's probably not going to happen very often that Stephen Sondheim's musicals are going to happen as they originally happened with the, the original orchestrations. That, I'm not sure, but I think it might be dead on Broadway. You will get it, for example, when the Kennedy Center did the festival of his works. That was a festival. So each one of those musicals had a few performances. So then you have the original orchestrations. But every time you see it, like by the next time you see Pacific Overtures, it might be for like kazoo and French horn. You know, it's like they're every time you see them, they're smaller. In opera, you can at least have more. I have figured out how to do small things, but I know, for example, when I do my new opera for Opera Theatre St. Louis, I will at least have 49 pieces. I did this musical about my family at the Signature Theatre. It was called Sycamore Trees, right? That was a musical about close-ups. Like the acting in that musical had to be like Bergman. And Tina Landau's direction was so detailed and nuanced and James Schuette's sets. And that is something that could only be done with singing actors of the highest caliber who can handle a 10 minute monologue that ends in sobbing. I've studied acting, so I like to ask as much of the artist as possible. If it's an opera singer, I mean, Stephanie Blythe, when we did the dress rehearsal of 27 said, this is the hardest role I've ever done. It's the biggest role I've ever done. She never leaves the stage for 90 minutes. You know, it's not like Fricka, you come out and sing your butt off and then you're off the stage. She was there all night. So it asks a lot. But I love the idea of seeing artists go beyond where they've gone. Because that's what I'm doing. I'm going beyond where I've ever been every time I write something new. I mean, Jennifer Zetlan in Ellen West. Hello. That was intense. Well, what's interesting is a piece like Ellen West is really, you know, kind of both worlds in a way, because it really requires acting and singing. It's got a smaller pit group. It's not, you know, a grand opera. It's very intimate. Mm -hmm. But it's obviously sound world wise. I hate to kind of play this binary game, but but it's more coming from the world of opera than the world of musical. Clearly, Absolutely. the vocal demands of Ellen West are not, they are not for musical theater singers. No, you have to be an opera singer. Even Nathan's role as the doctor is demanding. And Jennifer's role is really demanding vocally and emotionally. When we rehearsed, there's a reason why we had a director who was a woman, a conductor who was a woman. It was a lot for Jennifer to come to terms with in terms of the questions that piece asks just textually. We had to have a room that was very buffeted because it was a lot for her emotionally. And even when we first did it in Saratoga, Jennifer wanted to get very thin. She felt right being on a somewhat limited diet and she got very thin, but at certain points it was like, honey, you gotta eat. Like you gotta, if you're gonna sing that college section, you, you need some red meat today. But she, you know, she's a very committed performer. She's like Robert De Niro in Raging Bull. She's she's serious. So she they totally became that character. Really <laughs> wow. Did. And you know, wow. she never balked when Emma Emma asked her to take off all her clothes at the end and just be completely naked. There wasn't even a raised eyebrow. It was just I will do whatever this piece demands. For me, it's one of the most beautiful performances I've ever seen. It was just, it's so naked, literally and figuratively. 
It was such a beautiful performance. Didn't you think? And Nathan too, even when Nathan's sitting there just crying when she's on the train, you know, just his silent performance half the time. I was really proud of that piece. That poem lived inside of me for what, a decade before I finally said it. If there's a through line between everything, it seems like you are as immersed in literature as you are in music. And that great literature has been your fuel, your muse all along, you know, whether it's Proust, whether it's Steinbeck, whether you know, early on poetry of Edna St. Vincent Millay, Langston Hughes, Emily Dickinson, you know, all of that stuff, the life of Gertrude Stein, you know, like all of these literary people are your fuel. It starts with literature for me only because when I was a little boy, my older sister, Susan, who was a pretty well-known, by the way, journalist and memoirist, her name was Susan Lydon. But she would read to me Edna St. Vincent Millay to put me to sleep. Things like, you know, Edna St. Vincent Millay's famous, um, The Ballad of the Heartweaver, which begins, son said my mother when I was knee high, you've need of clothes to cover you and not a rag have I, there's nothing in the house to make a boy britches. So poetry became balm for me. And it also became how I ordered the world in my head. And it also became where I go in my deepest moments, like when grief is unbearable, it's, po it's only poetry that helps. And, but meanwhile, if I could turn back the clocks, I had all kinds of problems growing up, including, including drug problems and alcohol problems and, and ADD. And I, if, if I could go back and have another life, I would, I would be reading 24 hours a day. I don't consider myself well-read at all. I just consider myself someone for whom reading is very impactful. And you obviously take what you read and turn it into your own art. I mean, that's yes. like the ultimate thank you to the book, the ultimate praise yes. that you find a way to internalize this stuff and let it speak to you. In a way, you know, speak your own voice through it. It begins with when I memorize a poem, it's like I'm entering it into my hard drive to make me deeper or smarter. Knowing that poem lives in me makes me like myself better. Setting it to music is a way of making love to it and showing you the sex act. Do you know what I mean? It's like I offer it to you with everything I can possibly give it. And and all of it, it's funny because one of the chapters I'm writing, I'm writing right now about the creation of 27. So there's this day, Frank, our very first day of rehearsals, where there's Stephanie and Elizabeth, Stephanie Blythe and Elizabeth Futrell in the middle of the room, and the three men who at this moment are playing the paintings. They suddenly come forward and sing, have you visited Rue de Florousse? And... I just cried. I was like, wow, we really are bringing this and those people to life. Like if you see this opera, you're getting a good taste of Gertrude and Alice and Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Man Ray and Leo Stein and the paintings and Picasso and Matisse. I just felt like, yes, it is that thing of you stay in a room by yourself for five years or four years or three years, but by the end, you have really made something. You've created community. You have honored and exalted the writers you love. You have honored and exalted the singers standing in front of you who have something to sing and the players who have something to play and the conductor and the designer, all because you were in that room by yourself for a little while, sometimes with another writer, but still you're in the room by yourself. You know, it creates this incredible community and it brings something to life in the most profound way. That's what's addictive. You know, that's the crack of writing. You've collaborated with some of the top librettists in our field. You know, you work with Michael Corey, 
on Grapes of Wrath. You worked with Royce Vavrek on both 27 and and the, the Christmas opera. And, and don't forget, Michael Corey also did Finzi Contini. Okay, or right. Like Mark Campbell. Yep. Top people. But you've written your own words, most famously, but I'll go all the way back. The very first piece of yours I ever heard was water music. Wow, and that's my text. Yeah, yes. which is gorgeous. I mean, gorgeous. I text love that piece. And gorgeous music. So, you know, you're a writer as well, but when you work with a writer, you're obviously, you have to give that part of it up and let that person in. So I'm wondering how that affects your work, the music you write. Does it pull you in different directions than you would have had you written your own words? What is that like for you creatively, that tension of working with another writer? That's a great question, Frank. Each piece with a different writer is a different universe. And so I just worked with Lynn Nottage, right? And we're doing another opera together for St. Louis. Lynn's world is totally unique in terms of the way she shapes a plot and the detail of character. And like Intimate Apparel sprang from, it's the play she wrote for her mother after her mother died. And you feel that intimacy so she's an amazing storyteller. Michael Corey is a wordsmith. I haven't worked with anyone truly who can take a scene, an existent scene, for example, the whole opening scene of The Grapes of Wrath, where Steinbeck is telling you how the Dust Bowl was born. For Michael to take that whole chapter and whittle it down to the last time there was rain, is such a particular gift and no one does it like him that's all i could say is and each of these writers has their own genius that's michael's genius royce is this explosion of energy of these four writers the one i most like is royce royce and i never grew up we both are obsessive crazy nuts who, when you put us in a room together, can't shut up. And we're talking about all of our favorite movies and all of our favorite actors. And we're just like this. And it's like we bring out the toys and we're playing together. So I, I think that 27 and House Without a Christmas Tree have a kind of youthful sweetness to them that Royce brings out in me. He brings out the child in me. Michael Corey is very profound. Lynn is this like deep storyteller and then say mark campbell mark and i both started out doing musicals i met mark when i first got to new york and his writing partner was stephen hoffman and they were writing musicals together we were both in the ascap workshop charles strauss and stephen schwartz ran it and so when we wrote rappahannock county it was like we were just dipping into our you know our musical comedy horde Selves. It's like it's such a different world working with all of them. The piece I'm doing with Lynn now is very exciting because we're working with her daughter, Ruby. Ruby just graduated from Brown and she's a poet. So Ruby is going to be working with Lynn on the lyrical writing. And it's a piece called This House about a house in Harlem. I'm curious from the other angle, because you, you talk about working with Lynn. With Intimate Apparel, that work existed as a play before it became an opera. Similarly, you know, Frank Bidart's poem was a poem before it became your opera yes. together. I wonder, just as these other people may influence the direction your music takes, what does your music do to them in terms of how it turns their words around. How is the libretto for Intimate Apparel different as a sung libretto than the original play was? What has transformed there? Well, that's a great question because that took three years, Frank, because first of all, we had the dramaturg at the Met is a friend of mine. His name's Paul Cremo. And I've known Paul since he was at Sony with Peter Gelb and Paul, commissioned me to write a song for Kristen Chenoweth for her first album. And anyway, Lynn did three different librettos because she had to learn that the music is as much a storyteller 
in an opera as the words are. So, for example, her first libretto was too close to the play, including it had too much text. So it was like, Lynn, this will be as long as like Robert Wilson's Ka Mountain. But then the next version was much leaner. And then finally, the third version was intimate apparel boiled down to a stock. And that's what Lynn learned, because that's the hard thing to learn is as the playwright, you're really attached to your words. But if you want to be a librettist, you have to be attached to the events and the stories. And you have to decide which part of the words do you need to tell the story, but where can you leave the composer space to tell, for example, the intricate inner life of the story. There's so much you don't need to say because the music's going to say it. That's what took Lynn the longest with Intimate Apparel. But once, what's amazing about Lynn is she doesn't bring much ego to it. She doesn't like balk or defend her work. She just goes back to the drawing board because she wants it to be right and she wants it to be good. And that's probably why she has two Pulitzer Prizes and a MacArthur and anything else you could possibly win as a playwright. It's, she works really hard and she listens and she's a really easy, good collaborator. Really all these people are, they're good collaborators. You want to be in the room with them. When you write your own lyrics, when there's no collaborator, how is that a different experience? What do you lose? What do you gain? How is that a different experience creatively? You don't lose anything. You really gain there's a kind of fear related to that event that's very different. Like I can tell you, Green Sneakers called to me that I had written those poems and 10 years later, I was doing Grapes of Wrath in Utah, the second production of it. And I would meditate for an hour every morning and Jeannie Zuckerman and Lynn Mazza had asked me if I would be the composer of residence at the Bravo Vale Valley Music Festival and do like a 10 minute string quartet for the Miami String Quartet. But I was meditating one morning and I saw green sneakers. I saw the piece in my head. But those poems were written in such extreme pain and grief. And they seemed cut out of stone to me. I can't judge whether these texts are good or bad. They were exactly what was happening at that moment. I went to U-Cross in Wyoming, which is an artist colony. I go to write a lot. And I was writing the music there and I would wake up at four o'clock in the morning sweating and have to go to my studio at four in the morning because my fear was that I was gonna destroy my text or get the tone wrong because that piece, the text is so intimate the balance of getting the tone of it right so that it's not mawkish and also so that it's not unbearable for an audience. It's why there are so many interludes and the strings play such a big part in the telling of the story because I really felt like I had to constantly be letting the story breathe and the audience breathe. And so that was a very scary piece to write, but the opening night of that piece. That was an amazing night because we did the dress rehearsal in Colorado at Vale, and the critic, his name was Wes Blomster, and he came to the dress rehearsal and it was just him. And we did the piece and he was really shaking and sobbing. Like I just had to hold him. The next night at the world premiere, it was sort of the same thing. And then he wrote that beautiful review. I don't know if you've seen it, but it was Gordon Creates Masterpiece with Green Sneakers. And he compares it to Das Lied van der Erde. And I knew I had really made something from my loins. You know what I mean? It just felt so just created from the bottom of me. And in some ways it felt inarguable, like, it's nothing is lost. It's just, if, if anything's lost, it might be two or three pounds of flesh. And it's sort of similar with Orpheus and Eurydice because Orpheus and Eurydice is just me telling the story of Jeffrey and I through the myth. But then Green Sneakers is like the bald, unencumbered story. Just like, this is how it happened. 
now I'm writing a memoir and I get to fill in some of those details too. So you wrote the text before you wrote a note of music. So they were. Oh, I wrote the text uh, like a decade before. I wrote the text almost immediately after Jeffrey died. Wow. And I was staring at his sneakers in the closet. And the only thing I wrote at a different time was the epilogue, which is a poem called Sleep. I wrote that poem for him for his birthday, his last birthday with him when he was alive. Mm. And to end with that poem as the epilogue, I never really dreamed that it would be part of an opera that ends with me telling Jeffrey to sleep. It was so intense. I mean, it was like writing the opera Tibetan Book of the Dead, which I wrote to help him die. Everything in my life at that moment turned around because there's a lot I got to do with my work at a certain time in my life that I don't know how many people get to do that, like write an opera to help your lover die. And also just because the AIDS crisis was in the center of my life, I was constantly writing for people who were dying and memorial services and the AIDS quilt songbook ended with me coming out and saying my, I never knew, which was like, I never knew when I dreamed of holding all these men that there would be so little time for that embrace. It was a very intense time. Ellen West is also a text I discovered at that moment right after Jeffrey died. I'm sure what drew me to it is its ferocity. Yes, I struggled all my life with eating disorders and took speed to starve myself. And, but what's more important is I've never read anything where anyone gets to the bottom of an eating disorder in the way he does in that poem. In the last letter, right before she kills herself, when she writes to her friend who's still in the hospital, and she says, dearest, I remember how, how at 18, on hikes with friends, when they rested, sitting down to joke or talk, I circled around them, afraid to hike ahead alone, yet afraid to rest, for I was not yet truly thin. I mean, that's just, that's it. That's it, like I cannot rest until I'm perfect. I cannot rest until I'm thin. I cannot rest until I've written something beautiful. I cannot rest until dot, dot, dot. And that is the story of obsession. It's the story of eating disorders. It's the story of my life <laughs> in a nutshell. Well, it's so interesting that you tell your story through all of these other stories. You know, there was this historic Ellen West. You know, it's based on a case history. And mm -hmm. Albertine is a, is, is a fictitious creation of Marcel Proust, but probably has models in his life. But these are all stories of like another era, yet you as somebody writing them now, you can't but help but bring an element of now into the past. So I'm curious about what attracts you to these older stories. I was going through all these things. You know, Sycamore Tree is, is probably the most contemporary story, but it's your own story. Right. You know, it's your own, it's your own autobiography. But all these other stories happened, you know, maybe 50 to 100 years ago, or maybe, you know, earlier, you know, Orpheus Eurydice is like Greek myth going back, you know, millennia, right? How do you deal with the present creeping into the past in these pieces? And is that part of the point? The question is, is Grapes of Wrath any less resonant now than it was then? The entire world is one big refugee crisis, one big drought, one big food shortage, one big government saying it's not my fault. The Grapes of Wrath could have been written yesterday. When we wrote 27 about Gertrude and Alice, what was the zeitgeist? Gay marriage. And this is like the original gay marriage. These, these two women were calling themselves husband and wife before world, you know, world war one. It all feels like it's happening now. When Orpheus and Eurydice, I'm not telling it as a Greek myth. I'm telling it as my story. Eurydice is not bitten by a snake. She gets a mysterious virus that robs her from Orpheus incrementally. I was watching everyone I knew in the world, including my own lover, die 
one inch at a time. And Albertine is a story about obsession. And it's also like Ellen West, a story about sort of gender fluidity because Albertine sleeps with men, she sleeps with women. That's what drives him crazy. He feels like he can't get a grip on her. You know, I totally relate to that. And also there's like a whole chapter in my book called Obsessions. I feel like I just went from one obsession to another in my life until I finally settled down here for hopefully a little while. So the stories never feel historical to me. I never feel like I'm back in time. I feel like I'm just entering them. You know that thing Stravinsky said, I am the vessel through which passed Lestakra. That's what I just feel like I'm entering them and I'm making myself available for those stories. And then I feel like they sort of explode through me and there is no such thing as history or then and now. There's only the current moment and what seems to be my way of enveloping that story. Talking about this, you can't, but pay attention to the present, even when you're trying to focus on the past. You know, seeing Ellen West, it feels like a long time ago now, but it was just last year, you know? It was like the last, so much has happened to the world since then. But even before the pandemic hit, we were at this incredible moment of reckoning with the whole Me Too movement and everything. And it was hard to see Ellen West without seeing it through that prism. It was interesting to hear you at the beginning of this conversation say you had to have a woman conductor, you had to have a, a, a woman director, because there's no way this piece could be seen as, you know, the male writing the case history is the one who gets to tell the story, but it's clearly her story. And in the opera, it becomes but, and, her story. And that's the thing is that it isn't, the male gaze, okay, the male gaze of it being Dr. Binschwager, right? When Frank wrote that poem, he wrote it because in reading the case history, he felt like ultimately Ellen was unable to tell her story. She was a poet who was completely hamstrung by the style of poetry of the times she was growing up in. She could write romantic poetry about mountains and sunsets, but she couldn't write, I love sweets, heaven would be dying on a bed of vanilla ice cream. She couldn't write about it. So as a poet, he tried to enter her, to give her voice. In some ways, it gives her something she never had. You could say, it, but is it the right voice? Is it, are those the right words? But it's an attempt to animate someone who was heretofore disanimate, you know, inanimate. You know, and similarly, Coffin in Egypt. Look at, you know, our world in the era, the post-George Floyd world. I mean, that piece has even more resonance now, perhaps. It definitely does. And that's why I'd love to do it again. It was disappointing for me. I was glad we did it in Lincoln Center for the American Songbook series, but it didn't really work for me. You know, it's a piece of theater and, you know, you make it a concert with all that. It's like, it was okay. And I, I love Flicka, but it needs a stage. And I hope one day New York gets to see it as a production. You know, you do these, these productions, whether they're big, they're small, they always involve a lot of people, but you've also done solo work. You did those wonderful albums, singing and playing the piano of your songs. They're great. And, oh, thank you. You know, and you've written a lot of really fabulous solo piano music. There's that album. So there, you know, there are, there are things that you can do without any collaboration whatsoever. It's just you. Yes, I like it. And that's why I've been loving writing this book, but yes, if you live a life of collaboration, Frank, it's nice to take time off from it. It's nice to only be talking with yourself. Those albums where I sang those songs, which by the way, I didn't record those albums in order to say like, look at me, I'm Nina Simone, you know what I mean? I really did it because I heard so many performances of my work that were off. 
it seemed like the pianist didn't understand and the singer didn't understand. And I thought if I made these CDs of like, you can listen to those CDs and get this, the tradition of what I do. And I was satisfied with them. I'm grateful for the fact that I can play and sing, you know, and sometimes I can play really hard things and sing at the same time. That just happens to be something I can do. I'm glad. Who knows how long my voice will last. So I'm really glad I made those albums for that because how many records do you have of that with composers recording their own work in that way? Well, they definitely deliver emotionally. They deliver, I mean, which is the core of this work, I think. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, it is the core of this work. So we're in these cocoons. You're writing this book. But then life returns to the scare quotes, which you can't see on audio, normal, whatever normal means, or maybe this is normal and we return to abnormal or do we, you know, what are the lessons we've learned from this? How is this going to affect your work going forward? I really think it's going to be interesting, Frank. I don't know if there's ever going to be business as usual again. This wasn't something New Yorkers experienced. This was something the whole world experienced. We have all been through something together. I think we're going to be changed. There's a kind of humanism that I think is going to grow out of all this. We live in a very divided country right now, but I just can't imagine we're not all going to be affected by this. And frankly, in a positive way. You know, we've all had a lot of time to think. Maybe it's just going to be that we're going to be grateful to be together and kinder. The role of art in society and the role of the artist in society may in fact be more balanced when we return to normal because death is way more clearly imminent. So it can't be that an artist is a superstar that people worship and that critics turn them into gods and it can't be like this. There's too much. It's so clear we all die. How do you incorporate that into a new world where at any moment you could get a pandemic and everyone could be killed? What does art mean then? This concludes our episode of Sound Lives with Ricky Ian Gordon. I'm Frank J. O'Terry, and you can read a full transcript of our conversation on New Music Box. But before we sign off, let's listen to Ricky Ian Gordon accompanying himself on the piano in a performance of his song, The Different Albertines, from his musical My Life with Albertine, which was released on the CD Bric-a-Brac, Ricky Ian Gordon Sings Ricky Ian Gordon, released on Blue Griffin Records. New Music Box is brought to you by New Music USA the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. This program is funded in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York State Council on the Arts, the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, and listeners like you. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit newmusicusa.org to explore more stories and voices from our new music community.